hello and welcome to episode three of this fourth season of the Equip Project podcast. In this series, we're thinking about the structure of a healthy mind. There is more to the human mind than brain chemistry and psychology. At its deepest levels, a healthy mind has a spiritual framework that keeps it strong and stable. So far, we've thought about two structural elements, the experience of God's love and the value of a human life. In this episode, we will tackle perhaps the most sensitive issue of them all, the removal of shame and guilt. This is our second conversation this week. Jim, you'll be getting sick of uh, hearing my voice. Uh, we, we did a live event on Tuesday in front of a group of students from Strammillis College. Um, and it was a really good night. We got asked some incredibly difficult questions, but I thought some really good questions as well. Yeah, there were, there were excellent questions. Um, um, I was also delighted by the consistent feedback we received about the use of the ABBA song as our closing soundtrack on episode two. It's obvious, Ollie, that, that I have my finger on the pulse of popular youth culture. <laughs> Jim, that, that level of confidence leads me to, to think you might be starting a TikTok account before before too long. And there's some kind of dances with other themes. Oh, definitely <laughs> um, Turning, well, removing that image from our mind for a moment, um, turning to the topic for this episode, I'm conscious that we're going to address something that is a huge issue for many young Christians, the removal of shame and guilt. If there was a headline answer to that difficult question, Jim, what would it be? Well, there, there is a, a headline answer, but I hesitate to give it because it's going to sound um, difficult and, and even scary, and it might cause some listeners to turn off, because the headline can be encapsulated in the single word repentance. And unfortunately, that word uh, can seem threatening and negative to some people. So the first thing I need to say is that True repentance is a psychologically healthy thing to do. Now, we'll need to think carefully about what we mean by the term, but rightly understood, the concept of repentance is the key that opens up the way to the removal of guilt and shame. Okay, and to reassure everyone listening that the answers we suggest today are positive and helpful, I want to start by discussing what the outcome of true repentance should be. And then we'll talk about the three big concepts that lock together to produce repentance. But perhaps we'll only arrive at the heart of the conversation when we ask why some Christians struggle with shame and guilt, why they find it so hard to escape from those negative emotions. So that's the plan for this discussion, the outcome of repentance, the elements of repentance, and why some Christians fail to achieve healthy repentance and so remain full of guilt and shame. That sounds good. Uh, We should probably point out that we're going to limit this conversation to the experience of Christians. Obviously, everyone has to deal with shame and guilt. Um, but in this conversation, we'll be thinking about those issues in the life of a Christian believer. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess we should also say up front that every individual has a unique struggle with these sorts of issues because we each have a unique mind. So there's there's no one-size-fits-all solution to the problems of shame and guilt. Uh, listeners should expect that some, but not all, of any advice we discuss will apply to them. Uh, so, so let's get underway then by talking about the outcome of repentance. You said that repentance is a psychologically healthy thing to do. And if that's true, Jim, then what results does it produce? Okay, I'm going to start by explaining what repentance is not. Repentance is not just a feeling of remorse. Anyone can feel remorse. You know that feeling of having messed up your life and feeling bad about having let others down. Remorse isn't the same thing as repentance. 
Uh, And I think we can even go further and say that repentance isn't just apologizing to God. I can remember times in work when I failed to get some task completed on time and I had to apologize to my boss. But repentance is a much deeper thing than that. Now, I may well shock some of our Christian listeners here when I describe the outcome of genuine repentance. If I have truly repented, then my conscience will be completely clean afterwards. I will leave my encounter with my Heavenly Father with my head held high, and my heart will be bursting with gratitude because I will have once again experienced the love of Christ in my real life. I'll be acutely conscious of my dignity as a son or daughter of God, and what we might call the delicate fabric of my communion with the persons of the Trinity, will be utterly restored. To use the language we developed in the first episode, I will find myself once again within the circle of God's love. That's a pretty surprising way of describing the results of repentance. It almost sounds impossible to people who are perhaps in the grip of guilt and shame. It makes it sound as if our sin doesn't really matter. It's almost too good to be true, some might say. Well, as this conversation develops, we'll see that the story is more complicated for some individuals, particularly for those whose personalities can be anxious or compulsive. For people like that, even when true repentance has been achieved, there is a battle to fight between truth and the lies we tell ourselves. But we'll get to that later. Okay, let's now think in depth about this thing called repentance. You've said, well, it's not. It's not just remorse and it's not just apologizing to God. When we discussed this earlier, you said there were three interlocking elements that make up repentance. Could you tell us what those elements are? Well, the first thing that happens is that the heart gets illuminated by the light of Christ. Then the conscience gets cleansed by the blood of Christ. And finally, gratitude is triggered by the love of Christ. Um, you, You used the absolutely critical phrase just now when you described those three elements as interlocking. A lot of Christians go wrong because they just deal with one element in the presence of God and then try to sort out the others on their own. But for repentance to be genuine, all three of those elements must be worked out in the presence of God. Okay, let's consider that idea that the heart gets illuminated by the light of Christ. That sounds really amazing. What do those words actually mean, though? Yeah, I remember when I was a teenager being really confused by a story in Luke's gospel. You can find it in chapter 5. The Lord Jesus had asked Peter if he could use his boat as a sort of uh, floating pulpit while he preached a sermon to the crowd on the shore. And afterwards, he told Peter if he wanted to catch some fish to let down his nets on one side of the boat. Now, Peter was a professional fisherman, but out of respect for Christ, he did as he was told. And to his amazement, his nets captured this huge catch of fish. Now, the bit of the story that really confused me was Peter's reaction. Scripture says he knelt down in the boat and said, Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And I could never work out why Peter was so suddenly overcome with his own sinfulness. I mean, it wasn't as if the Lord had accused him of anything or there had been no transfiguration into gleaming clothes or anything like that. But then one day it dawned on me that Peter had suddenly realized that he was standing beside God incarnate. And the sheer moral grandeur of Christ caused him to be overcome by his own sinfulness. Um, The man called Job actually had a similar experience at the end of his story. Now, the Luke 5 incident helps explain this first element of repentance. True repentance begins when our sinfulness is shown up by the light of Christ's character. Now, you might be visualizing that light as a sort of laser torch, you know, carried by policemen to find criminals in the darkness. And I I don't quite mean it like that. There's something quite beautiful about the character of the Lord Jesus, 
Uh, when we encounter his goodness and selflessness, his utter fairness, his integrity and truthfulness, in the light of that moral beauty, we see our own characters as being full of grubby selfishness and shabby inconsistency. The sheer ugliness of our sin gets exposed. And it's at that point we realize what is truly real and valuable. We see in Christ all that is good and noble and true. And so the only authentic response is honesty and humility. We recognize that God's condemnation of our actions is right. We're without excuse. We just have to stand there in the light and accept the fairness of God's verdict in our lives. There's no possibility of squirming away from the truth in a moment like that. No whispered excuse behind the back of the hand. There's just this moment of searing honesty, like the moment when Nathan the prophet confronts King David. You remember when after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and Nathan says, Thou art the man. And David collapses in repentance. Against you, O Lord, against you only have I sinned, he, he writes in Psalm 51. Now, David knew full well that he had sinned grievously against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. But what he was doing was seeing himself in the light of Christ's moral grandeur. Sin, after all, is falling short of God's character. So we can only see our own sinfulness in the light of Jesus' character. Yeah, I see how that's a a really significant and important idea, Jim, because quite often we measure our behavior against our reputation. The standard by which we measure ourselves is the good things other people say about us. And So we can end up being more worried about being a sort of imposter in the eyes of other people than being chiefly concerned about the gulf between our moral ugliness and the beauty of God's character. That phrase spoken by Peter, away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man, is the mark of someone who truly sees their sin in the right light. That's exactly right. Now, the big mistake a lot of Christians make is to stop the process at this point. But the second element interlocks with the first. It's not enough for the heart to be illuminated by the light of Christ. Secondly, the conscience must be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now, in one sense, most Christians know that theory already. The problem is that for many, it remains just that. It's just a theory. So to explain the problem, I I, I want to make an admission, Ollie, okay? Sometimes I'm a little envious of the ancient Israelites uh, when I read about their rituals in books like Leviticus and Exodus. As you know, while they were in the wilderness, God's people had a tabernacle, a big tent, and they had a priesthood and this elaborate system of sacrifices. There were sacrifices that covered the guilt of sin and the damage that sin had caused and so on. Now, let's just use our imaginations for a moment here and think ourselves into that set of rituals. So imagine you are a poor Israelite farmer, okay, and you have unfortunately committed some horrible sin. Perhaps you lied in a business transaction, you sent another family into financial ruin, or perhaps you cheated on your wife. So you're full of guilt and shame. And so you lead this little beautiful young goat, uh, a kid goat, into the outer court of the tabernacle. And maybe you've watched the little thing being born. You'd rescued it on occasion when it got trapped in a thicket. And the goat has been trotting trustfully behind you, but now it bleats in fear because it can smell blood. Then there are flames spurting out of the great altar near the entrance. And then comes the fateful moment. You lay your hands on the head of that innocent creature and you confess your sin. Oh, wretched man that you are. And a knife flashes through the air and the little creature is killed. Its blood spills onto the ground. And you would see what your sin has done. You would see it, you would feel it. The whole scene would be bloody and horrible and heartrending. Now, I hope you can see why I might be envious of that ancient Israelite. 
I'm a little envious because he could see how the process of forgiveness and cleansing worked. It was tangible. He had stroked that little animal's furry head, and now his hands were covered in blood. Now, contrast that with how I repent. Okay, If you were watching me repent, you would see a 58-year-old man sit in his kitchen beside a large red aga cooker. I might be bowed low in the chair. You might hear me sigh or groan. My face might be wet with tears on occasion. But the point is this. You would see nothing happen. There would be no tangible evidence that some great transaction was taking place, a real meaningful process that was lifting the burden of shame and guilt out of my heart. Did you understand me? Yeah, I think I think that makes that makes a whole lot of sense, Jim. And as you paint that picture there, I can see why you might be envious of, of that ritual. The author of Hebrews makes this point, doesn't he, when he tells us that the tabernacle was a picture of the realities in the unseen world. In chapter 8 and verse 5, he says that the Israelite priests served as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. But the tabernacle and its systems of sacrifice are a picture of something we can't see. And that can make the whole idea of having our consciences cleansed seem a little abstract, can't it? That's right. I mean, there are no smells or sounds or things to touch when we repent. Yeah, exactly. And and yet he goes on to say in chapter 9, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? I love that verse. Um, Because the blood of Christ can achieve inner cleansing, cleansing of the conscience. That was something the Old Testament system could never deliver. So they would be deeply envious of us, of course. So what is actually happening when you repent? What's actually going on in the unseen world that that old tabernacle represented? Well, you stand in the holy place, in the presence of God, and you look your heavenly Father in the eye and you say, as a son or a daughter of God, that you have sinned. You acknowledge your moral debt without equivocation or caveat. And then Christ, who is your great high priest, stands at your side. And he, like an advocate, reminds the Father that your debt has been paid in full by his own blood. And then the third person of the Trinity, the Eternal Spirit, who dwells within your personality, performs an operation on your conscience, cleansing it from every stain of guilt or shame. And that's a beautiful description of what's going on in the heavenly realm. But my question is, how can we experience that inner cleansing? How can it become a meaningful moment in real life and not just an abstract idea? Well, of course, the Lord Jesus did leave us with a tangible ritual. Um, It's certainly our custom, Ollie, to to receive communion every Sunday. Um, The Lord Jesus seemed deliberately to lay that pattern down after his resurrection. And the key thing about communion is that it is tangible. We break a physical loaf. We each take a piece of bread and chew it and swallow it. We drink a a sip of wine from a cup. And in that moment, we are appropriating the goodness of Christ's sacrifice death into ourselves. We internalize it, if you like. The bread and wine are, of course, just symbols. But the sheer physicality of the ritual has been designed to help us experience the reality that we can appropriate the work of Christ into our real lives. Now, that's only a a partial answer to your question, Ollie. The the writer to the Hebrews gives the main answer uh, when he reaches chapter 11. You see, the, the way to become convinced about the reality of the unseen world 
is to exercise faith. Just think of that big list of men of faith, men and women of faith. In, in fact, he defines faith as an assurance about what we do not see. So the secret is to trust God in your daily life. And by doing that, the unseen world will become more and more real to you. And so the cleansing of the conscience will begin to be something you can actually experience. It will stop being theoretical. So we've thought about two elements of repentance so far. The heart is illuminated by the light of Christ and the conscience is cleansed by the blood of Christ. But the third interlocking element is that gratitude is triggered by the love of Christ. Yes. A key hallmark of true repentance is that gratitude erupts out of the forgiven sinner's heart. Remember that through this entire process, we have been in the presence of God. The Father has accepted the Advocate's argument that his shed blood has paid the moral debt incurred by our sin. God the Holy Spirit has applied that truth to our consciences, cleansing them in an unseen spiritual operation. So our only response can be gratitude. It may not be loud and exuberant, but there's this quiet, profound sense of gratitude to God that once again he has been patient with us and loving and forgiving. Even though our sin will have grieved the gentle spirit of God, he still chooses to dwell in the wreckage of our sinful minds. He is relentless in his commitment to change us and bring us home to glory. So gratitude is the only authentic response we can make. Now, let me rephrase that point in a more hard-nosed manner. If we leave our encounter with God without feeling gratitude, it almost certainly means that we have not truly repented. Well, that leads on to the climax of this conversation, Jim. I want to cut to the heart of the guilt and shame problem and ask why some Christians seem unable to pass through the repentance process as you've described it so far. Why do some people struggle in this way? I can think of three reasons why people struggle to achieve a psychologically healthy repentance. And the first is that some hide their shame from God. The problem actually goes back to an insight you mentioned earlier about people who instinctively measure their sin against their own reputation. I've known some young Christians who treat repentance a bit like a trip to the court in order to pay a speeding fine. You know, and they make the trip as quick and painless as possible, pay the fine, and then they stew in guilt on their own for months. The visit to the court may have sorted out the legal stuff, but the shame they feel is undiminished. So, Here's the point. Never treat repentance as a sort of legal transaction. The real you must stand in God's presence and look your heavenly father in the eye as a son or daughter of God. Now, I mention that because if you try and deal with your shame on your own, outside of God's presence, you will end up believing yourself to be a loathsome worm. You will be ashamed uh, of um, uh, your very being. Never forget, no matter what you've done, you are still a son or daughter of God. First John reminds us that Christ is an advocate before the Father. Yeah, and what you're saying there it sounds very much like what was happening in the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son starts to repent, he says that he's unworthy, but he ends up being treated by his father as a true son. That's right. Now, the second reason why people fail to repent properly is that they don't believe that anything actually happens when they repent. You know, all that stuff in Hebrews about the Holy Spirit cleansing our consciences, that's just abstract theory to them. It doesn't feel real in any way. Now, the underlying problem for people like that, people who aren't totally convinced that the unseen world is real, is that they then self-atone. They try to make atonement for themselves because they desperately need something tangible that gives them closure. 
But self-atonement is a denial of the gospel. It's the heresy that lies behind penance and behind the Roman Catholic doctrine of absolution. So the solution for people tempted to self-atone is to become more and more convinced that the unseen world is real, and that conviction grows as we exercise faith in our daily lives. The third and final reason why people struggle with shame and guilt is related to personality traits. So let's imagine a young Christian has in fact repented in the scriptural way I've described. Okay, The light of Christ has shone into their hearts, the blood of Christ has cleansed their consciences, and the love of Christ has triggered a sense of gratitude. But suppose our young Christian has a compulsive nature, okay, or a personality that's haunted by anxiety and self-doubt. Objectively, they know they're forgiven and cleansed. But in the storm inside their head, loud and accusing voices tell them that they are dirty, loathsome imposters. Now, these voices are trying to instill false guilt and false shame. So you should learn to regard them with contempt. Whenever you hear those voices, tell them that you despise them. I love the picture of the disciples in the boat. Uh, They're flailing away in the storm while the Lord Jesus sleeps in the well of the boat. It's a great picture of a troubled mind. So if anyone is troubled with compulsive thoughts or anxiety, it can feel a bit frustrating that Christ doesn't stand up and calm the storm. But sometimes it's enough to know that Christ is in the boat with you. He's not remotely worried by the storm going on in your head, so why should you be worried? In the final analysis, you will learn that the unseen world is more solid and more real than the world of physical stuff. Now, in the context of mental health, that means that spiritual realities always trump brain chemistry. I had to watch my mother die from Alzheimer's disease, but it became clear to all our family that mum was more than her brain. Her place in the unseen kingdom was the solid and lasting thing, even as her brain atrophied. And I sometimes think that people whose mental world is troubled are being taken on a journey by God to reach that same conclusion. The most important thing about you, and about all reality, is that it's not composed of physical atoms. Okay? Thank you, Jim. I think this has been a really helpful episode and, and hopefully our listeners have found that too. Just to recap, in season four so far, we've considered the experience of God's love, the value of a human life, and now the removal of shame and guilt. Next week, we'll consider our confidence in the future. But until then, have a great week. When Satan tempts me to despair And tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there Who made an end to all my sin Because the sinless Savior died My sinful soul is counted free Forgot the justice satisfied To look on him and pardon me To look on him and Spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is in with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. My Savior and my God One with Himself I
so high With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God